The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So the first thing to say is advice is really good. <laughs> like I am pro-advice. Don't get me wrong. There's no way I'm saying stop giving anybody advice ever because everybody will hate you. <laughs> and one of your jobs, Laurie and I have a podcast going on right here, which is loaded with advice. Yeah, so I, yeah. we are pro-advice. What we're trying to tackle is your default response to advice giving. The metaphor that shows up in the book is this advice monster because I mentioned it as a throwaway line in the coaching habit and people love it. So I'm like, we'll bring it back and we'll bring it back in force. So the advice monster is what drives you to leap into inappropriate advice giving. Because as soon as they start talking, your advice monster looms up and goes, I'm going to add value. Here I am. <laughs> Tell them stuff. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman, and this is Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Michael Bungay-Stanier. His new book is called The Advice Trap, and I've read it. It's about giving and actually receiving advice, and it's pretty good. It's the much-anticipated follow-up to his book, The Coaching Habit, and you can get a sense of who Michael is by going out on YouTube or your favorite video platform and checking out his brand new TEDx talk. I have been following Michael for many years, and this interview was a super big treat for me. And I simply started out the conversation by asking him, how do you describe what you do for a living? <laughs> In a vague, rambling and ill-defined way, mostly. These days, I would say I'm the author of The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. Oh, very nice. And do you do any consulting, speaking? How else? I'm the founder of a training company called Box of Crayons. But, you know, six months, nine months ago, I stopped being the CEO of that. And now it's a little bit in my rearview mirror. Somebody much more competent than me is now running it. So I'm like, I get to watch her do a really good job. So I'm, I'm kind of still figuring out what I do for a living. Sure. What a great place to be in during a pandemic. I know, exactly. During a zombie apocalypse, I'm like, I probably shouldn't rush this decision. <laughs> you know. No, no, no. All good decisions are good decisions, regardless of the environment and what's there happening. There we go. So, yeah. yeah. So it was always an intention to resurface and also step away from an, an old and a fairly established identity, which is like the box of crayons guy, and go, well, what am I without that? And try not to rush to fill up my calendar with the next thing, but just to give it some space to go. The longer you wait, probably the more interesting things will emerge. So that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Well, welcome to this podcast. This is it, man. We're, we're <laughs> I'm emerging. Here I am. You I'm are. Here Congratulations. To yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't realize this is the culmination, but uh, perfect. I'm not I'm not sure it is. It may be the low point, but we'll go we'll see from there. Well, I'm so happy to have you on today. I've been a big fan for a very long time. Thank you. And I think if my business HR management audience knows you, they may know you from your wonderful book, The Coaching Habit. So can we start there for a second and talk a little bit about what that book is and why maybe it resonated the way it does? 
I know. It's about four years old, and it has been this rock star of a book. It's so good. And some people know this, but I spent three years trying to get it published and having it turned down by publishers until finally I went, right, I'm just going to self-publish it. I'm going to do the best job I can. So I'm going to do a professional job of self-publishing, not an amateur job of self-publishing. But I think this is a good book. And I don't get why they said no, they being the, the publishers. I'm, not, I'm just going to do it. It's now sold three quarters of a million copies. And I get nice notes all the time from people who've gone, this has been a, an important book for me. So what was behind it was a long-standing belief and kind of driving thing of mine, which is to say, look, coaching is a really powerful technology. When you're well-coached, your brain explodes and your life changes, and it can really make a difference, both in the small stuff, day-to-day stuff, and in the bigger stuff about who you want to be in this world. And it can feel like it's an exclusive club. It can feel privileged. It can feel rare. It can feel complicated. It can feel weirdly black box. It can feel touchy-feely. There's a bunch of people and the audience of this podcast are probably going, oh no, we love coaching, but we're weird. <laughs> I mean, we're slightly odd people. <laughs> we are. I mean, you know, Laurie, you, you're odd. It's just, we'll just put it out there right yeah, no, the Nobody's shocked by that. But yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So there's a whole lot of other people in this world going, I don't know, coaching, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to do it. I don't know if I'm just a normal person trying to have a job that doesn't suck, have a team that I like working with, make a difference in my work. And I'm not sure coaching is the thing that helps me with that. It feels too often like some HR obligation. So when I wrote my first book about 15 years ago now, 2005, very long time. How old am I? One of the high points of that was Peter Block, who's a writer and a thinker in this space, wrote a blurb for the book, which is so thrilling because he's a total intellectual hero of mine. And he said, part of what's powerful about this book is it says that coaching isn't a profession, but it's a way of being with each other. And there was this articulation of something I didn't even know that I believed, but I believed. I'm like, oh, that. I want to find a way to make coaching feel like it's a way of being with each other, a day-to-day way of showing up. So the purpose of the Coaching Habit book was to unweird coaching, to make it feel like an everyday leadership behavior. And by leadership, I mean, if you interact with other people, this could be helpful. And so the advantages of having it turned down for three years by other publishers is I've spent three years writing bad versions and then slightly less bad versions of the book. So by the time I finally was ready to write the actual version, I'm like, no, no, I've written this so many times. (laughs) I'd always said I want to write the shortest book I could that was still useful. So it is, it's a relatively fast read. It's practical. I attempt to be humorous in it. And some people find my humor humorous. So, you know, it makes some people laugh some of the time. <laughs> right. You know, not everybody. My favorite review on Amazon is this is the worst book ever written. So some people don't like it at all. So it's like Mein Kampf and The Coaching <laughs> Habit. Like, <laughs> like that. Exactly. I was like, first of all, how many books have you read? Because I mean, there's a lot of books in this world for it to be the worst book. And I'm like, really? There's a book on Amazon, which is called Executive Summary of Michael Bungay-Stanier's The Coaching Habit. And I'm pretty sure that is a worse book than The Coaching Habit. (laughs) But, you know, each to their own, I guess. Eh, Whatever. What I think really resonated with me is that for my professional career, I've always had this belief that we fix work by fixing ourselves. And this was one of the first books that went, here's a tool. Like I could use this. I could learn a little bit more about myself and I don't have to spend a fortune, which I think most people fear with coaching. And I can also 
maybe in a not so passive aggressive way, give this book to my friends who are on their own self journey, right? So I've given this book as a gift, like, I don't know, 25, 30 times. And now everybody who's received it now knows my secret and why. But I really felt like it was, and I hate the word democratize because I don't really believe that that's the right word, but it really democratizes coaching in a way that I found helpful. So thank you. Well, thank you. That means a lot because, you know, democratize, I mean, democratize is a loaded word, but it is there's a principle behind it, which is something that I do strive for, which is like, I just want this to feel like it's an accessible tool for people who may not otherwise get it for whatever reason. Yeah. So normally when people write a book, they jump headfirst into consulting. <laughs> like They're just like, I wrote this book and I'm going to go headfirst into consulting. You've had a parallel path with consulting for many years. So what's that business like for you? So... You know, I started a company called Boxer Crayons almost 20 years ago, 2002. And when I started, it was because I'd been fired from the previous job, which I had not done very well at. I'd left a job in Boston and I had a new consulting job lined up in Toronto where my wife and I decided to come and live. Our flight out of Boston was on 9-11-2001. So yeah, exactly. Laura's making a face. Everything kind of (laughs) went complicated right immediately. Yeah, yeah. And my job that I had lined up disappeared. But I found a temporary job doing kind of stuff around the company. The organization was rebranding it. And I was going to come in as a change guy and help them use the rebranding as a way of driving change internally so people could live the brand. Anyway, six months of misery. I kept trying to come up with plans. My boss didn't know me, didn't like me. I had no actual control or actual influence. So I was impotent. And after finally six months, I went, well, we're done here. I'm like, you've been awesome because you paid a salary for six months. It allowed me to get my landed immigrant status, like a green card status or whatever. Started Box of Crayons. And I was a classic solopreneur starting off, which is like, I will do anything. <laughs> I'll just do anything. If you have a pulse and a wallet, I am up for it. <laughs> right. And you know, quite frankly, the pulse I can give or take. I don't mind right. so much if you have a wallet. <laughs> right. And you know, I'd done enough leading up to that that I could turn my hand to a bunch of things. I could teach innovation, communication, strategy, you know, a bunch of stuff. But over the years, one of the things that came up early on was coaching and training people on coaching. And I built a program for Nestle in Canada. And I was like, oh, there's something interesting here because I was a fan of coaching. I tried to build a coaching practice and then discovered I didn't love actually doing nothing but coaching people because I like entertaining people and showing off and creating content. And you don't get to do that if you're a coach so much. And I was irritated by the way that coaching was being taught to people because kind of life coaching companies were just coming and going, we'll just teach you the same stuff. And I'm like, you know what? They're different. You know, if you're a manager and a leader in an organization, you have a different power relationship with the people you're working with. You have different time. You have different obligations around keeping things quiet and secret and the like. It's just that it's, it's, there's so much that's different that even though you might be using a similar tool as in questions, how you show up and be more coach-like is different. Well, wait, wait, can I drill a little deeper for those who haven't read The Coaching Habit or or really just don't know? What is it about your philosophy that differs from the old corporatized way of coaching? I would say, I'd say it probably starts with the definition of what do we even mean by coaching? And actually, the first thing I say is let's not even call it coaching. (laughs) Let's say, let me teach you to be more coach-like. Because that just unweirds. There's a whole bunch of people going, I don't want to be a coach. I'm like, great, I don't want you to be a coach. I want you to be you who is using the tools of coaching to be more effective. So be more coach-like. And they're like, well, what does that mean? Because we've all heard of coaching, but nobody quite knows what we're actually talking about. And I'm like, well, I've got a definition. 
can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Because quite frankly, you're an advice giving maniac. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know you, but I know for sure that you are wired to want to leap in and help give solutions, give ideas, offer up opinions because we've been trained for it all our lives, because we've been rewarded for all our lives, because our little amygdala lizard brain kind of says, no, tell them what to do. It's better for everybody. <laughs> and it's not. It is not better for everybody. So what I'm trying to do is essentially help people and organizations shift from advice-driven to curiosity-led. And that's a fundamental shift in really how people think about coaching. Well, I guess I'd make these other connections. So I'm like, well, how do you help people stay curious a little bit longer? And I go, well, look, I've got three principles for you. Be lazy, be curious, be often. So being curious is the most obvious of the three because it's like tame your advice monster. <laughs> ask more questions, rush to give advice and move to action a little more slowly. Being often is actually quietly the most radical of the three because it says coaching is not an occasional formal intervention. Hey, Laurie, come into my office. I'm going to do some coaching with you, which of course weirds everybody out. It's like, oh, I don't know. We were having such a nice working relationship, but now she's coaching me and it's all gone horribly wrong. Yeah, it's a little creepy out of the blue. Yeah, Absolutely. it's a little creepy. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, once a month, we've got to go through this weird ritual of being coached or coaching and it's not good for either of us. So I'm like, actually, be often means every interaction with somebody in person, virtually, by voice, by video, by text, by email can be more coach-like because it's just being more curious. It's just asking a few more questions. And then being lazy is to say, stop rushing in to try and fix and solve other people's problems for them. Be the person who helps them figure the stuff out themselves because then they work harder, they get smarter, they feel more empowered, they get more autonomy and more self-sufficient and more creative and all of that good stuff. And bonus, you get to work a little less hard but have more impact in the work that you're doing. So what's not to love about that? I love it. And that leads us to present day with your new opus, which is the advice trap, right? Your new piece of work, your new piece of art. And one of the things I'm struck by in your description of coaching is this double bind that people find themselves in. People who are coached really do look to that coach for answers. Otherwise, they're like, what am I paying you for? So there's not like this built-in patience in that relationship. And then also coaches feel as if they're not necessarily demonstrating value unless they're answering questions before they're even asked. And I think in your new book, you really peel this apart and blow away some of these myths. Well, you tell me more. Sure. So the first thing to say is advice is really good. <laughs> like I am pro advice. Don't get me wrong. There's no way I'm saying stop giving anybody advice ever because everybody will hate you. <laughs> and one of your jobs, Laurie and I have a podcast going on right here, which is loaded with advice. Yeah, so I'm yeah. here pro advice. What we're trying to tackle is your default response to advice giving. The metaphor that shows up in the book is this advice monster because I mentioned it as a throwaway line in the coaching habit and people love it. So I'm like, we'll bring it back and we'll bring it back in force. So the advice monster is what drives you to leap into inappropriate advice giving. Because as soon as they start talking, your advice monster looms up and goes, I'm going to add value. Here I am. <laughs> Tell them stuff. Even though they're telling you about a situation you don't understand involving people you've never met in the context you don't really get with technical specifications you haven't even seen, after 10 seconds, you think you've got an opinion. It's ridiculous. So it is about slowing down the rush to give advice. It's not to not give advice. It's to slow down the rush to give advice. So 
when you're on either side of this conversation, you're the person coaching, whether you're a manager or leader, or you're formerly a coach, whether you're a person showing up going, I'd like to get coached in some way, it's worth trying to figure out how this plays out. Now, I'm going to give you three tools that could be helpful for this. The first is something that actually coming back to Peter Block, Peter Block taught me years ago, which is around something called social contracting. And this is really helpful if you have a kind of formal relationship with somebody. And social contracting is when you have a conversation about how we're going to work together, not what we're going to work on. And the temptation is always to talk about the what of the work. You know, what needs to be fixed? What needs to be done? What's the hard thing that we're trying to sort out here? Because it's there, it's tangible, it's the brief. You're like, let's just get into it. And social contracting says, why don't you just slow down? Because that's going to be there in 20 minutes time and have a conversation about how best to work together. And you know, I remember Peter going, look, I'll give you some questions. And I think these are the ones he gave me, but I probably just made up my own at this stage. I'm like, first of all, it's things like, when you've worked with somebody like me before, and it's been awesome, what happened? And you tell me and I'll tell you. Stories of, of a really good working relationship. And then it's like, when you've had a working relationship and it's gone off the rails, what happened? What did you do? What did they do? When things go off the rails, how do you react? You know, is it fight? Is it flight? Is it passive aggressive emails? Is it weird silences? Is it, uh, you know, is it something scarier? (laughs) One of Peter's great questions is how do you feel about the amount of control you have over this relationship? This whole thing is kind of just showing that the messiness of power in organizational life. That's a really difficult but powerful question to ask. Do you find that these questions, I think they're so powerful because they get to the human heart. Like right as you're mentioning them, I'm like feeling them. I can actually feel my reaction to that. And it's a different way of describing the way I live and the way I breathe than an outcome of a coaching relationship. Here's the magic of social contracting. It allows you, and by you, I'm talking about collective you, to talk about the relationship again when it goes wrong. Because it will go wrong. That's the nature of relationships. They always go off the rails, sometimes badly, sometimes a little bit. But you're giving each other permission to say, it's okay for us to talk about how we're doing together. And it creates a resilience to the relationship that you might not always have. And to bring it to specifically to the conversation around managing you or I'm coaching you, one of the things you get to say is like, you know, one of the things that I won't be doing is I won't be leaping in to give you answers. I'm not going to leave you exposed. That's often what I say. I'm like, look, I've got your back. You need to know that I am a huge champion for the work you do. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to rush in and give you the answers. I'm going to hold this with, I mean, my language is fierce love. Love meaning I've got you. I'm a fan of you. I'm going to try and make you flourish. Fierce meaning I'm not going to be nicey-nicey about it. I'll do what's called for to help you be the best version of yourself. And sometimes that's a hug and sometimes that's a shove. And it just depends. Well, you know, corporate coaching doesn't often allow for love. And that's what really resonates with me in thinking about your work. Corporate coaching allows for revenue. It allows for a black and white look at profitability, right? But it doesn't look at the whole human being, but it could. It could so easily. So do you often have to overcome really big emotional obstacles to even get people to the point where they're willing to be the type of coach that you're describing or receive the type of coaching that you're describing? Because it's so antithetical to the way we're trained to interact in our global corporate environments. I see that ability to celebrate the person who's in front of you show up in patches. 
I mean, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. I'm very influenced by Martin Buber's very simple model around you have two types of relationships in this world, I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. And I-it relationships are when you stop seeing the full human in front of you. They become objectified. And I think it's true that organizations will just drive I-it relationships because they're kind of machines in a kind of big complex way. And everything works a whole lot better if people are objectified. If you don't call them people, but you call them FTEs, you know, this, that, that, that's an I-it relationship. And I-thou relationships are when you are fully present to the full person in front of you. And it's a much more elusive thing. And it's hard because you've got to deal with your own shit. <laughs> you've got to sort yourself out and be present to yourself. You've got to have your own I-thou relationship with yourself to allow you to show up and, and be that with other people. But it is when I'm facilitating a group in the good old days when I could actually get in front of a crowd and facilitate on a stage. And I take people through a practice where they are paired up with somebody they don't particularly know and they do coaching. And we just take them through three or four rounds of questions where I give them these rules. And at the end of it, I go, all right, before you debrief, the first thing you do is you look your partner in the eye and you say, you are awesome and you're doing great. And the first time they do it, there's this hilarious awkwardness in the room. Everyone's <laughs> like, ah, oh, cool. I just yeah. threw up in my mouth a little bit. What? That's weird. By the end, they're like, God, and there's high-fiving. And it's like, it's like a good version of a Tony Robbins kind of thing. You know, there's like this appreciation for the other person in the room. And I'm like, God, it's actually, it's closer than you think just to be present to the person and go, you're awesome and you're doing great. Yeah, that's really special. I think about this book that you've written, The Advice Trap, and what we're going through now in the age of coronavirus and COVID-19. And just even out of my own bad habits, here I am making appearances, giving out advice, talking about like best practices, working from home, best practices, interacting with one another over Zoom without really even knowing the individual on the other side of the screen that I'm talking to and advising. What do we do, though, when we want to give out good ideas and we think we have the answer, but we don't want to be that jack-of-all-trades person who's just spouting trite nonsense? Like someone like me, how do I make sure I'm not perpetuating bad coaching? There's no hope for you, Laurie. (laughs) Well, we know that. But for other people (laughs) who are listening in, I don't know. Okay, so look, there's no easy answer to this. In this weird time, it's hard to exactly know how to navigate because there's a lot of anxiety about. And when there's a lot of anxiety on both sides of the conversation, there's a hunger for certainty because even wrong certainty feels better than actual ambiguity. And so on one hand, people are like, Laurie, tell me what to do. And you're like, I can tell you what to do. And they're like, isn't this awesome? We're telling you this. And it feels helpful and it might be helpful. I guess all I can say is, look, I don't have a solution for you here, Laurie, but part of what I am trying to ask myself is, how do I best walk the line between the light and the dark? You know, the dark is the chaos that's happening and the human cost of what's happening right now and the real dislocation that people are feeling and may probably get worse before it gets better. Lots of people are going to lose their job. Lots of people are going to lose money. It's a scary time. And there's also the light, which is the opportunity, the chance to rethink and to reinvent and connect in a different way. There are green shoots here as well. And if you go too far on either side of that, 
it serves you less well. If you're too far in the dark and you're like, we're doomed, we're all doomed, that doesn't help you or the ones around you. It just sets up kind of echoes of anxiety. If you're too much into the, oh, this is fantastic. Look, I'm pivoting. And this is, I love pivoting. This is amazing. What an opportunity. Then you're kind of callous and you're insensitive and you're tone deaf. So part of what I think is when somebody goes, hey, Michael, what's the answer? I have two responses. The first is to go, before I give you the answer, what's the real challenge here? I mean, this is a key question from the Coaching Habit book. It's like, what are we actually trying to solve? Because when people go, hey, Laurie, how do I work from home? That might be the real challenge, but it might actually be, how do I feel secure about my job? How do I tell my family that I can't actually cope living with them for 72 hours? It just might be, it might be just something that's a little deeper and a little more important. And then I think the second thing is when somebody goes, hey, how do I do this? One of the responses that I often have is, well, look, I've got some ideas and I'm going to tell you what I think. But before I tell you my ideas, tell me what you already know and what ideas you already have here. Because when they go, Laurie, how do I work from home? And you go, I've got a ton of expertise around that. So I'll, I'll share some of my best tips with you. But already, what do you think? How, how do you think you would best work from home? What would you do? And what else would you do? And what else would you need? And what else would be helpful? And they'll figure a whole bunch of it out themselves. So that when you then go, look, you've got nine out of 10 things perfectly. Let me give you one other useful tip. Get a pop filter for your microphone because it just makes you sound better or whatever it might be. Or get some lighting so you get a little sparkle in your eyes because it makes you look better on screen. You know, there's other little things that you could help them with, but... It's like figure out what's really going on and figure out what they already know before you come in with your own advice. Well, those are great pieces of coaching for me. Thank you so much for that. As you were speaking about walking between the dark and the light and there are green shoots, I was thinking about your story of 9-11 and my own story. And then many of us went through the economic crisis in 08 and 09. And for the most part, we emerge in maybe a better or a different place, right? But a lot of innovation comes from these really tough moments. And I see many of my peers in the consulting and speaking and book writing business who are freaking out and rushing to video and trying to put a ton of content out there thinking they can monetize that way. I see a lot of people really trying to hustle. And you know, of course, I mean, we have to provide for our families. But what do you see when you see all of that? And what do you think? when you watch all that happen online and in our communities? Well, I think a a number of things. The first is, I think of somebody like Dory Clark, who for years has gone, you need to have multiple streams of income. If you're an independent person, you got to go, I've got some, a little bit of money from books, a little bit of money from speaking, a little bit of money from residuals, a little bit of money from online courses. So there's that. I then love to look at the people who I go, you're doing just a really nice job the work you do. So like Whitney Johnson at the moment does a, I think it's nine o'clock call and it's around, I think the title is how to be calm in a time of chaos. And she is just being a gatherer of people and a voice of calm encouragement. And I'm like, you've just got the right tone. I mean, you've just found a place to be of service in a way that secondarily enhances your brand and enhances your reputation, but is playing a longer game. And there's no, you know, she's not monetizing any of that. She's just going, this is my job at the moment is to be in service. 
And I also just have always thought for a long time, you build your reputation just slowly. It just takes a long time and it's so quick to break. You know, it's like pointillism, which is like this impressionist painting, which is like lots of little dots of color. And when you step back, suddenly you're like, oh, it's a picture. And then when you're up close, it's like lots of dots of color. I'm like, that's your brand. So you've spent some time building this brand and people have a picture of you. And now you're like, what's the price you pay for going, I've got big red brush and I'm putting big red dots everywhere. Because you're like, okay, you're ruining the picture here. There's also a place where you go, you have to hold up, I think, a place of compassion for people who are like, I'm just freaking out here. So it's trying to find that. I mean, this is walking the line between the, oh my goodness, I've got to reinvent myself and reinvent my business model. And then I kind of like, well, how are you doing that? in a way that doesn't make you seem loud and shouty and brittle and desperate because that just doesn't actually give you what you want. So it's hard. I mean, this is messy and difficult. Yeah. Lots to think about though at this time. And one of the reasons I'm so glad you came on the podcast today is to help us think differently about advice, advice giving, advice receiving. So thank you again for writing this book and any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Sure. Here's a final thought. It's a question that people might choose to add or increasingly add to their repertoire. In a place of anxiety, you feel like you have fewer rather than more options. And one of the things that can be helpful is to spend time, once you figure out what the challenge is, going, what are my options? What can I do? What are, what are possibilities here? And the question, and what else, is a really powerful way to say, look, you're not done yet. There's actually some other things you could do. So you know, if you're like, how do I make a buck right now? You know, Spend some time in asking yourself, and what else? And what else? And what else? And there's a way that that might be a helpful tool to say, Stay open to the possibilities because you'll be you'll make the choice. But if you make the choice too soon, too fast, you might be missing the, the bigger win. Love it. Michael, thank you again for being a guest today. It's been really a treat and an honor. My pleasure, Laurie. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael. Now, he's got a ton of tips and resources out there, and we've compiled them all, including his book, The Coaching Habit, his new book, The Advice Trap, and his awesome TEDx talk. And it's out on my website at laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr dash 102. I can't believe we have 102 episodes of this podcast. We exist because of you and for you. And I'm really grateful to you. And I'm also grateful to Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Production who work hard week in and week out to make the show great. So thanks y'all for your hard work and thank you for listening to Punk Rock HR. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.